Welcome one and all to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back again to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I am Sheldon Leonard. No, I'm just kidding. I'm Tanko. <laughs> This is a two, Sheldon Leonard. This is part two. Dick of, Van Dyke show producer. Oh, I thought that was your colleague on the on the Cobb bench, and he had a different first name I didn't know about. No, that's Rob. This is a two part, or this is part two of a two part episode dealing with closing arguments in criminal cases. Now, if you've not listened to part one, pause this, hang on, go catch, catch up. up. Yeah, yeah, go do your thing. I think you're going to appreciate the content of this episode much more if you listen to both. Yeah. Plus you'll know who all the characters are because we've done a lot of character development in the first part of the series. Yes. And yeah. So again, shout out to uh, Lena Donikoski, a Cobb County lawyer who made a great presentation at our summer seminar for superior court judges, which inspired us. We didn't copy it, Wade. It inspired us to tackle this topic. So in episode one of this mini series, you like mini series? I do. That's awesome. We spent a lot of time talking about what is allowed in closing arguments. And we probably stayed at the thousand foot level mostly. Yeah. And, and we, we even spent some time discussing the overall philosophy of closing arguments and the different styles that we've each observed lawyers use, you know, while we've been on the bench. Now we get to the controversial stuff, the good stuff, Tane. Yeah. The, the no-nos the, the of closing nitty arguments. gritty. So, yeah. Uh, here we go with closing arguments in criminal cases. Round two. Uh, maybe even Stephen can find a boxing bill or something to put ding, in there. Ding, ding, ding. Round two. Yeah. So while lawyers are free to make illogical and even absurd arguments or analogies, I did that a lot <laughs> in closing arguments, yeah. not intentionally. Nah. There are some things that just cannot be argued, Tane. Yeah, that brings us to one of the more common objections that we hear in closing arguments: the ever dreaded burden shifting objection. So to make sure everybody's on the same page here, let's discuss the attributes of this alleged burden shifting argument. So the part, the prosecutor in a criminal case has the burden of proof. And at no time does that burden ever shift to the defendant to prove innocence. You, you've, you've charged that about 112 zillion times. Exactly. Any closing, opening, or other argument made by a prosecutor that suggests that the defendant has the obligation to present evidence or that the burden of proof ever shifts to the defendant is simply error, reversible error, if not cured by the judge. But there is a huge difference between an argument that points out shortcomings in the evidence produced by the defendant and one that suggests the defendant had an obligation to present evidence or to somehow testify. That's right. And we're going we're gonna to help you with some examples to show you what the difference is. So the prosecutor, and this is a quote, the prosecutor may properly draw inferences in his argument from the non-production of witnesses. Reading law during a podcast is not... Awesome. It's not awesome. It's Unless awesome. it answers the question. Oh, good. The prosecutor may properly draw inferences in his argument from the non-production of evidence by the defendant. So in example number one, Tane, prosecutor commented on the defendant's failure to produce evidence substantiating his alleged knee injury that impaired his ability to walk and somehow had some relevance to why he could not have committed this crime. The, the answer, not burden shifting, 
Merely a comment on failing to produce evidence. That's right. And therefore appropriate. In Absolutely. That case. Yeah. And the next example where a defendant claimed that he was not present at the crime scene, it was not error when the prosecutor noted in closing that the defendant failed to produce any evidence as to where he was at the time. In other words, no alibi evidence was actually presented. The appellate court said that's not error. Merely commenting on the defendant's failure to rebut the evidence presented by the state is always fair game. Now, let's be honest. Somebody would have had to have testified in that scenario, right? Yeah. There is a huge difference and we're going to and we're going to really hone this down as we go forward, but there's a big difference between pointing out deficiencies and somehow suggesting they had a burden to produce up. That's right. Now, uh, in the third example, where the defendants claim that they were merely present at the scene and did not know of a plan for a robbery to occur, the prosecutor can comment that the defendants have not rebutted the state's evidence. It said that they that they knew it was going on. Yeah. Okay. So therefore, it's not burden shifting for because their defense basically in that case was no. No, we weren't. We didn't know. <laughs> well, we were just hanging out. I know nothing. We were just standing around. Yeah. Go ahead. Therefore, it's not. I've only heard that. I've only heard that argument made about nine thousand times. <laughs> really. Um, it is not burden shifting for a prosecutor to argue that the defendant failed to produce evidence and that refuted the state's case. But that brings us to the close cousin of the burden shifting argument. And these kind of blur together sometimes, Tane, that has been really hotly debated in recent years. The defendant's right to remain silent and comments on that right by the prosecutor. Right. We've had a bunch of cases on that. So quick history lesson here. In 1991, a case commonly referred to as Mallory was decided. Without going through all the facts in that case, a bright line rule was announced. The state can make no comment on the defendant's exercise of his or her right to remain silent, not during the investigation and not during the trial. In other words, if the defendant doesn't doesn't answer the investigator's questions, you know, when they ask pretrial and he decides or he decides not to talk at trial, you can't comment on that. In 2019, the Supreme Court announced a new rule that actually overturned Mallory's bright line rule prohibiting such a comment, at least relating to pretrial silence of the defendant. And, 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 and we want you to listen now, at least relating to pretrial silence of the defendant. You're still not going to be able to say, hey, he was sitting right here. He could have taken the stand during this trial and told you X, Y, Z. That's just always going to be reversed. Yeah, no doubt. I don't remember which number that was. I don't know, but I did it really well, so it doesn't matter. But yeah, so in the decision in the case of the state versus Orr, there was a domestic violence situation. The victim was Orr's girlfriend, and she testified to a set of facts that suggested that she was attacked without provocation, and there was evidence that she had been severely beaten. Mr. Orr was the victim's boyfriend, and he was charged with the crime. And at trial, Tain, Orr argued and testified that he was actually the he was actually the victim of domestic violence committed by the girlfriend, not the other way around, and that he was merely defending himself when he punched his girlfriend. In fact, he testified that she had hit him with a glass ashtray and split the split his skin, which was the catalyst for the entire ordeal. He actually showed a small little scar on his forehead. Now, during the trial, the prosecutor asked responding officers whether the defendant had indicated that he was actually the victim in this incident, and they responded that he had not told them that. So when the defendant testified, the prosecutor on cross-examination asked him whether he had called police about being attacked on the date in question or, or any of these other prior occasions that he claimed his girlfriend had regularly attacked him. 
The defendant testified that he had never made any such call to the police. And then in the closing argument, the prosecutor said the following, and this is uh, an actual quote from the case. That night, the defendant, he wants to now claim self-defense. I find that particularly convenient. He never told the story to the police, never once said, hey, wait, 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 I'm the victim here. She came at me with an ashtray. I submit to you that this is something made up because he has an interest in the outcome of the case. Now, here comes the objection almost immediately, right? The objection being that the, the prosecutor is commenting on the defendant's silence. Basically, he said that he claimed the prosecutor was making an improper comment on the defendant's right to remain to si- remain silent. Tell the folks what what the Orr decision kind of came out to. It's a long decision, but this is a very brief summary. Sure. So the the Supreme Court traced the origins of the Mallory decision, the previous one that we talked about, and determined that the bright line rule established in Mallory was judicial lawmaking. In other words, or that was what they that was the phrase that they used because it was not based on constitutional principles and was not based on then existing evidence law in Georgia. The court then discussed the rule 402 and 403 uh, under what, what I'm about to hit Tane's trigger point under the new rules of evidence. (laughs) That child is in like fifth grade now. Yeah. So 402 and 403 dictate what are the new barometers of what is relevant and whether even if relevant, the evidence should be excluded because its prejudicial value is outweighed by the, the it, its prejudicial value outweighs the probative value of the of the evidence. Yeah, stated another way, the Orr Court said that there is no longer a bright line rule of exclusion, and that the traditional evidence rules should govern whether a defendant's failure to come forward with evidence is admissible. So instead, the Orr Court said that trial courts should, should determine whether the failure to come forward should be considered an adoptive admission, and I'm using air quotes, under Rule 801-D2B, or even a, just a regular old admission under Rule 801-D2. So that evidence venture aside, you may be asking how the Orr decision impacts closing arguments. So you're going to recall that we told you in this last episode, callback, That lawyers are allowed to argue reasonable inferences, even unreasonable inferences, from the evidence actually admitted. So if the failure of the defendant to come forward to refute charges back when it was being investigated is admissible, the lawyers can comment on it during closing arguments. We do not want you to get this concept twisted. No comment can be made on the defendant's refusal to give a custodial statement or refusal to testify at trial. And that makes sense. I mean, th- those, are, those are absolute protections that he has from the Constitution. The defendant has no obligation to do so in either scenario. He doesn't have to talk. And as a general rule, uh, that's the rule. That's the right that we're protecting here. So, so this is the quote that we want you to hear. And this is from a case that's cited in the outline that people can find where, Tank? At goodjudgepod.com, Wade. The state may note in closing argument the defense's failure to to produce or present any evidence that rebutted the proof shown by the state. It is reference to the failure of the defendant himself to testify, which is absolutely prohibited. But if the failure to come forward amounts to an adoptive admission, what was said or what was not said prior to trial may well be proper for closing arguments. Now, Tane, there are currently 57 appellate decisions at Sidor, and um, I chose the, 
the, the, I made the choice. We're not going there today. I think you should read all of those. Yeah, right? we should read all the facts and talk <laughs> right. about how they're tangentially related. Um, if you find yourself in a situation involving a tacit admission or an adoptive admission, you need to look at these cases because there are a lot of cases on a lot of little sub points that may be right on point with your case. Yeah. I mean, the good, the good news is there's a lot of guidance out there. The bad news is there's a lot of guidance out <laughs> yeah, there. Exactly. So, yeah. Just, we just understand that pre-arrest silence of the defendant's not always improper in closing argument, but there are hoops to jump through and that you're going to need to jump through them if you're going to expect to get that int introduced into evidence. So let's leave this, these two hot topics and go to a new one, Tane. Yeah, let's, let's talk about flight. And uh, wasn't that the name of a Denzel Washington movie? That I was, was thinking really that good. same thing. Yeah, that was a really good movie where he lands a plane upside down. Yeah. Wasn't that the name yeah, of that movie? Yeah, yeah. Like, the topic of the defendant's flight from the scene, whether it be from the scene of the crime itself, Escape from custody, resistance to arrest, concealment, assumption of a false name or identity, and any related conduct is circumstantial evidence of guilt. Now, there may be another alternative explanation, but it can come into evidence. But, Tane, what's the absolute no, 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 no here, even though it's not really on the subject of closing arguments, it's related enough? It is absolutely reversible error for the court to charge the jury on the topic of flight. Let me say that again. It is reversible error for the court to charge the jury on the topic of flight. Evidence can be admitted and the parties can argue about whether the defendant fled and what that may mean. And you simply cannot get a jury charge on the topic of flight telling the jury what the legal significance of flight was. And somebody may be able to go back and pull one up because there used to be one that then got struck down uh, for these very reasons we're talking about. So don't be fooled, judges, because it's in a case out there. Somewhere. Correct. And, and there's a quote in the outline that says, we have said that evidence of flight is generally relevant and supports an, inferences, an inference of consciousness of guilt of the underlying crime regardless of whether any flight-related crime was actually charged in the case. There was a period of time where somebody said, well, you can't talk about flight because he wasn't charged with fleeing. That's not relevant. Right. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us. And follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. Now, one other biggie that seems to have arisen re recently that we need to cut off and eliminate. And forever. Forever, so that people stop getting reversed. Um, that is attempting to quantify reasonable doubt. Stop doing it. So lawyers know and, and judges know there's a part of our charge. We're going to tell the jury that they do not have to be convinced beyond all doubt or to a mathematical certainty. And Boy. Let's, let's face it, y'all. 
none of us are good at math anyway. Lawyers, judges. I mean, it's why we got into this business in the first place. So stop playing around with math. It's dangerous. Well, some lawyers took that instruction and they warped it, Tane. And they began arguing, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to even be 51% sure. Because the judge is going to tell you it doesn't have to be to a mathematical certainty. Or you don't even, it's enough if you're 90% sure. Hey, hey, that's the third rail, babe. <laughs> yeah, don't touch. Do you just can't touch it. Don't go there. And 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 Wait. and read the quote from the do 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 do. Can't touch this. Wow, great you were, one, man. You went you went way far for that. That was a great. I've got I've got parachute pants on. I'm about to yeah. <laughs> I'm about to dance all out or out in here. Uh, okay, to read the quote from the court. This is the third rail. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was your quote. That's such a good quote. Um, we admonish lawyers not to confuse jurors by attempting to quantify a standard of proof that is not susceptible of quantification. That's bang. So that's Drop it. the mic. Yeah. <laughs> so some more no-nos. These, these are, these are less big trees in the forest. These are saplings, but they're also <laughs> equally no-nos. They're in the no-no forest. Okay. Yeah. So number one, a defendant cannot argue for jury nullification. You know, telling the jury that they have the right to ignore the law, that's impermissible, folks. The golden rule argument, that used to be a big deal. I don't hear it as much anymore, but that is any time that you try to tell the jury they should imagine being the victim or somehow be you're, you're the grandmother of the victim or anything, you can't do that. You can't make you tell the jury to imagine themselves in the place of one of the players in the game. Yeah, the third one, you cannot argue that the defendant should be convicted to prevent future dangerousness. Now, you can argue that the defendant is dangerous, as shown by the evidence of the facts of the case, but you can't argue that he should be convicted because he might do something again in the future or something else in the future. Um, that's not an applicable prohibition in the penalty phase or the death or, or the penalty phase of a death penalty case. Um, but just understand, you can't do it in closing argument. Prosecutor can urge the jury to speak on behalf of the community and, and tell this defendant, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm doing my gestures back from one of my prosecutor days. Yeah, I saw that. Tell this defendant that, that it's not tolerated here. You can do that. But sometimes that argument becomes blurred with somehow arguing future dangerousness, dangerousness like tell this defendant he is not going to do this again. That's a problem. Yeah, be careful when you're, tell when you're talking about future actions yes, of the defendant. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you cannot argue that a witness was not indicted, which proves that he or she is not guilty of a crime. So, so I mean, you're talking about a witness. So, yeah. So – he the defendant says this person was a co-conspirator. Maybe they're the actually the ones that did it. You don't have to worry about that. We didn't indict him. And that's going to relate to the next thing. We only indict guilty people. <laughs> okay. No, you can't argue that. Um, you cannot ever argue punishment. Obviously, that's not applicable in a death penalty case. And you cannot introduce new evidence during your closing taint. Things that were not actually presented during the trial, now, and that happens a lot. Well, it happens a lot, and and it also it particularly is a problem when you're dealing with people who are representing themselves. And that's another whole yeah. issue for another whole day. But you know, defendant doesn't take the witness stand, but then he wants to get up in closing argument and say, "But I didn't do this because blah blah blah." You know, that's that's very problematic, and it happens in those cases. It's improper for lawyers to express their personal opinion about to the guilt or innocence of the defendant or whether anybody was believable. Folks, I believe her. I've been doing this forever. And this is a believable witness that 
you can argue why that person's believable. You can't argue what you think of their credibility. Yeah, and as you said a minute ago, a prosecutor can't argue that their office only prosecutes guilty people or that the grand juries only indict guilty people. I was going to do an impression right there, and I'm just going to stay away from it. That's good. Of a famous person. I'm glad you don't. That, it was going to get us in trouble, in it? It was. So, get some mail. what should a trial judge do if there is improper argument made? So, we've kind of discussed the biggest trees on most of those improper proper arguments. Tane, where should they look? Yeah, uh, the best place to start is go to OCGA section 17-8-75. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. And that, that, in essence, says where counsel in the hearing of the jury makes statements of prejudicial matters which are not in evidence, it is the duty of the court to interpose and prevent the same. On objection made, the court shall also rebuke the counsel and by all needful and proper instructions to the jury, endeavor to remove the improper impression from their minds or... In his discretion, talking about the court, he may order a mistrial if the prosecuting attorney is the offender. So we've got a little double standard there as to what, what happens. But just understand, I mean... Yeah, that's this, one of those 1868 statutes. Oh, yeah. Rebuking and whatnot. Oh, yeah. But this is a shall. So you got to understand, if, you, if somebody says something in front of the jury that essentially brings in quote-unquote evidence, um, the judge has a duty to go and fix that. The judge does not, however, have a duty to sua sponte rebuke a per attorney, uh, uh, the prosecuting attorney, excuse me, or to give any incurative instruction absence and a timely objection. So, Tane, that first one was is kind of a two-parter. Mm -hmm. It has a sentence saying the judge shall interpose and prevent same if it's an improper argument, mm -hmm. period. Right. Then it says, upon objection made, the court shall rebuke counsel and, and, and interpose curative instructions. Yeah. So, so that's one of those ones where as a judge, you have the ability to go, bip, 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 bip. <laughs> stop the, eh, eh, hold on. Eh. <laughs> Is there anything more humbling other than recording a podcast and listening to it? Is there anything more humbling than reading yourself on a transcript? It's horrible. I mean, it just like, there's not even horrible. a sentence there. What yeah. was I saying? Or you, you have a, a court reporter who takes down every grunt or, uh, or whatever. I really appreciated them not doing that. Yeah. That's awesome. That's not a word. Don't write that. Um, down. Stated another way, it appears that the trial court has an obligation to interject when there is an improper argument made, but the, the obligation to rebuke, etc., is really based on a timely objection. And Ms. Donikowski suggested, and we agree, the best practice is for the judge to give a curative instruction when an objection is made. Now, I don't know about you, but especially early in my career, I said, what would a curative instruction look like? Yeah. And and Linda in her presentation gave us a, a several. I mean, you know, you can tweak it to your own way of speaking. But why don't you tell people what her first example was? Yeah, and and I think these are really good. The first one says, "Counsel, that is an improper argument. The jury's verdict should be a true verdict based upon the jury's view of the evidence according to the laws I will give them during the charge." Ladies and gentlemen, it is your duty to consider the facts objectively without favor, affections, or sympathy to either party. And in her example, that was where somebody was arguing something about sympathy. Right. So here's another one, that, since you're so good at reading these. Why don't you read this one? This one is about somehow there was a that there was something that at least arguably was burden shifting, okay? Yeah. So uh, the, the instruction was this. Counsel, that is an improper argument. 
The burden of proof rests with the state to prove every material allegation of the indictment and every essential element of the crime charged beyond a reasonable doubt. There is no burden of proof upon the defendant whatsoever, and the burden never shifts to the defendant to introduce evidence or prove innocence. Counsel, you may proceed. The language of both of those may sound familiar to you. It's obviously taken from jury charges, and so that's that's what's really helpful here. So um, as you can see, you might need a moment or two to gather your thoughts when these things come up, and um, in such a situation, our advice is send the jury out and formulate a response before winging it. I mean, I'll have to tell you one of the greatest things you have at your disposal as a trial judge is the ability to call a timeout. The countless timeout rule. Oh my Lord. Yes. And yeah, it's not like that throw over to first base rule now where you can only do it three times or whatever. Um, but I think that's important. Now, counsel's going to get upset with you for stopping them right in the middle of closing argument, but you know what? You're your job is to fix things. And it's, imagine that they make a mistake that triggers you responding, and now you misquote the law. Exactly, which is now going to cause us all to try this case over again. Yeah. It's better to just stop, take your time, and do it correctly. And just remember now, rebuke does not equate to berate. You're not <laughs> expect to, to, to you know. Now, counsel, <laughs> I've been come telling up, come you. Up, come up here to the bench now. <laughs> Hold out your hand. I'm going to hit it with a ruler. Exactly. <laughs> so while a timely objection is required to preserve the issue on appeal. Why do we always sound like foghorn leghorn when we do something like that? I don't like know. That? It okay. gets very Southern. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, while a timely objection is required to preserve an issue for appeal, if the argument is sufficiently egregious, it may be found to, com to constitute reversible error or at least ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal. So, Tane, if the if the argument complained of is, and I don't know any other way to say this other than merely improper, it can be cured by the judge giving rebuking counsel and or giving a curative instructions, assuming an objection was made, the judge should do just that. Right. I right? mean, you, you use the least nuclear option first. You yes. Know? Yeah. But where it's so inflammatory or prejudicial that you can't give enough curative instructions to remove the stain of that argument from the jury's minds, there's really no choice but to declare a mistrial. Yeah, but I would never in a million years declare a mistrial except upon uh, a motion for mistrial, extensive argument outside the presence of the jury, and a consideration of alternatives. Tell the people why. Well, because if you declare a mistrial in a criminal case— jeopardy may attach and you there may not be an ability to retry just because you've declared a mistrial and that's an important point that people forget is we that's not a do-over necessarily when you declare a mistrial in in linda's in linda's paperwork uh the documentation one of the things she said is unless you find that the prosecutor intentionally provoked a mistrial you're going to be able to retry it after declaring mistrial but why not why not why don't we don't do that why don't we find? Why don't we not find out? Why don't we use a progressive discipline sort of thing and go yeah. that way? Yeah, if there's a less nuclear option, <laughs> something less than the nuclear option, perhaps we should go there first. So, Tane, that's all for our episodes on closing arguments in criminal cases. Wow, those were pretty amazing. Uh, thanks. Yeah, and you know what's funny with with us doing two parts like this and calling back to the other episode and going forward, it's like watching a Christopher Nolan movie. It's like Oppenheimer, where you're like. Wait a minute, they're in black and white. Is that in the past or is that the future? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. 
I always like it when I can make Wade chuckle. So, folks, the law is clear that lawyers have broad latitude uh, and can use figurative speech and can even go on flights of fancy. But there are some guardrails that we use. Again, huge shout out to Lena Donikowski for her great presentation that spawned not one, but two episodes of the Good Judgment Podcast. Score. And remember, folks, send us emails at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And look for this episode outline along with all the others at goodjudgepod.com. So with that, I'm Wade Padgett. And I am Tane Kell. Don't worry, folks. We're not going to leave you high and dry on the music trivia here. Music trivia time. Now, quick peek behind the curtain or the microphone. Wade prepares our outlines most of the time, and he began adding this music trivia section a few months ago. But we agreed that I would not read them before the recording session, so I'm usually as surprised as you are about the topics. Today is no exception. 1990s music trivia. We have predated the birth year in which many of our music trivia stuff here today. So um, we're moving forward a couple of decades because, you know, Wade and I like the old stuff sometimes. Um, There were lots of different genres of music that have become popular in the 90s. And with all of that diversity, what was the best selling album of the 1990s? You give up? Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. You knew it had to be something alt uh, for the 90s. I mean, this decade had hits from bands like TLC, Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, while at the same time it had hits from bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana. But this last part of today's trivia might take the cake. Who had the first rap single to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1990. I haven't looked at this yet. I'm going to guess. Is it Beastie Boys? Any more guesses? Is it uh, Sir Mix-A-Lot? NWA? Yeah, NWA. LL Cool J? Yeah, I would have thought maybe LL Cool J. Nope, that's not it. (laughs) (laughs) It was our old friend Vanilla Ice with Ice, Ice, Baby. Ice, ice, baby. I still believe he stole that bass line from Queen. I don't care what he says. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. 
Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute, who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.